you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Welcome back, guys, to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. I've got a great guest today, a real business builder. He's a brewmeister, finding great success brewing authentic German-style beers right smack in the middle of Milwaukee and Chicago, real beer towns with such a huge history of brewing. True, he's not running a restaurant, and he has no plans to do so. But in this episode, whether you're a beer lover or not, Mr. Mike Marr is going to share powerful nuggets on what you can do to get attention, shake up your market, get customers, and build your business. Listen on. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Of course, we're all about engaging conversations that help other operators rock their brands, build their business, deliver amazing guest service experiences. Today, I'm really excited. I've got Mr. Mike Marr, and he is the brewmeister and the founder of Buffalo Creek Brewing Company. And we're going to be talking all about beer and starting a brewing operation. Welcome to the show, Mike. Glad to have you. Thank you very much, and uh, good morning. Yeah, good morning to you. Now, you're located in a place called Long Grove, Illinois, and I understand there's a rich German heritage there. Can you tell me about Long Grove, what's it like, and where this heritage comes from? So, uh, Long Grove was actually settled by uh, German immigrants that were uh, originally farmers. And, uh, I mean, the town itself, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, a New England town that you would go to. It has a one-lane covered bridge. Um, all the buildings are from the uh, the 1800s, um, and it, it it really has a lot of uh, solid culture. In fact, the town was originally named uh, Mutter's Holz, which is uh, High German for uh, Mother's Woods. Yeah. And uh, so, that, and there's a place now called Mutter's Holz. It was in Germany after uh, World War One and the uh, redivision of the lines. It's now about 10 miles inside the French border. And. So go ahead. That sounds like a really, really beautiful place. Um, have you been to Germany yourself? I, I have. I, I go on uh, every year. I try to get over there for Oktoberfest. Um, I've got a lot of friends over there. Yeah. And uh, when I'm not doing that, I also uh, head over in the uh, wintertime to go skiing in the Alps. That's awesome. I'm a huge skier as well. I've done quite a bit of skiing there. And I remember having a a whirlwind trip to Munich. I mean, I was just passing through on my way to Paris, France. It wasn't Oktoberfest time, but I remember going to the famous Hofbrauhaus and buying one of those, you know, liter glasses of beer after I drank my very fast liter of beer and jumped on another train. But what a cool, you know, just the whole history of brewing and it's just such a proud tradition. And I can see that that's inspired your brewery and being in the place that you're at, it must be the perfect place to brew beer. It is, and, and the building, you know, that we, you know, the building that we found, you know, we, we did a search for years, uh, trying to find the right spot, and we didn't want to create a, uh, you know, another brewery that's in a warehouse or a rundown building or in a strip mall. We we wanted to create a destination brewery, and uh, I've been uh, going out to uh, breweries now for probably the past ten years, and uh, <clears throat> it's one of those things as you go out there, you kind of. I've been taking notes as to what makes a great brewery and what makes a great experience when you show up. And beer is obviously the number one thing that you need. Um, and, and 
you know, that German culture. Uh, all the beers that we uh, produce, or, or I'll say 90% of the beers we produce are either uh, German or Belgian in nature. And uh, we put our own little twist on them to make them ours. But it's, uh, you know, these are classic clean styles of beer that have been around for hundreds of years. People have been drinking them for hundreds of years. And it's, uh, um, you know, it's kind of our, our mainstay for what we do there. Uh, we, we do uh, explore into other things, uh, such as, uh, you know, uh, you know we've got the IPA craze. So we've uh, got a double IPA. We're actually coming out with a New England IPA. Uh, I think you might enjoy that. And uh, that's going to be coming out in another week or two here. Do you, are you self-taught? I mean, how did you learn to brew beer? And now, uh, you know, you're a brewmeister and you've been doing this for quite some time and you've won awards. I mean, how, do you, how did you first get into this and how did you refine your craft, your styles? All that's really interesting. So I, I started uh, about 16, 17 years ago. Um, my wife bought me a homebrew kit and uh, made the first batch of beer that came with the kit. And it was a, uh, you know, back in the day, um, homebrew kits were not a dime a dozen. This was something that came from uh, Australia, and uh, they had a, a stout uh, pack, a recipe uh, with all the ingredients inside. And I had made that beer, <clears throat> tried to follow the directions exactly, and you know it passed as beer, but it wasn't really good. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to learn more about this. So. You start off with, you know, the, the joy of homebrewing, uh, which is kind of a, back in those days, that was the, the first book. You, and first and foremost book is kind of like the Bible of, of homebrewing. And uh, from there, I, I picked up a lot of other books and kind of self-taught myself how to brew, um, mostly by uh, educating myself first and then doing a lot of experiments and uh, trial and error. And as I was starting to get, you know, consistent results that were pretty decent, I had friends that would come and say, okay, well, now that you're brewing, can you make this? Can you make that? And they would always challenge me to make different styles of beer. And uh, our number one beer, which is our uh, marvelous, it's a uh, German-style Kolsch, was something that someone challenged me, you know, 15, 16 years ago. And I've been making that same beer. have not changed the recipe at all in, in all that time. I love the name of that beer, Mike. That marvelous says it all. And I want to hold that thought because I want to get back into that. But you triggered a question that um, I really want answered. Tell me if you – when you started out as a home brewer, you have very rudimentary equipment and and tools to to craft these beers. And you said, okay, it was it was passable as beer, but it wasn't really great. It wasn't really good and that sort of thing. Does it take really specialty equipment? Is that part of the next step to to get that much more out of the beer to make it really, really drinkable? And someone says, wow, that's incredible. You know, bottle that and sell it. Like, how does what's the next step there? So, you know, the equipment itself, you, you can, you know, as long as you have a, a pot big enough to boil a couple gallons of water, you can make beer. Uh, you, you can make really quality beer, and it's, it making beer is actually more about technique than it is about having specialized equipment. I, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I've been all over the um, uh, country and uh, many parts of Europe. It's amazing to see, you know, there, there's all the high end stuff, but then there's stuff that people Frankenstein together, and they make fantastic beer with it. And uh, so it's it's like you said, it's more about the technique and even with uh, um, some of the competitions I've done, it was more about uh, the, the technique than, you know, I, we've, 
were doing a competition for a pale And I decided I was going to only use two ingredients, uh, or well, four ingredients, but it was um, a single malt and a single hop. So they call that a, a smash pale. Um, and smash being the single malt and single hop. Um, but the uh, I actually came in second place in that, and I won more on technique. Uh, then the other people, they were putting in, you know, five, six different types of grains, um, throwing in three or four different types of hops. Uh, th- these were things that, you know, I had a lot more fun just trying to really refine it and make it a perfect beer versus uh, going down the list of every ingredient I could throw in there. Wow. Okay. So what inspired the name <clears throat> Marvelous? You created this beer um, and you submitted this beer to a festival, did you not? I did, and uh, it was originally called Marvelous Madness, and so my last name is Mar, with two oh, R's. gotcha. And that's where the Marvels came from. Okay, and, awesome. Uh, the, yeah, so originally, you know, Marvelous Madness, it was a picture of an alien drinking a, uh, uh, drinking a pint of beer, and we, um, my neighbors uh, encouraged me to, you know, basically enroll the beer in the uh the Great Lakes Brew Fest up in uh, Racine, Wisconsin. And, you know, this was back in the day when brew fests, they weren't a dime a dozen. There, there was only a few, and, and this is something that every fall we look forward to going to. And, uh, you know, I'd been there for three or four years at that point, and when they all say, hey, you, you really should put your beer in there, they used to have a homebrew section. And so I was going to enter the beer under the homebrew section, and something happened that year where they ended up canceling the uh, the homebrew. And at that point, I had already made seven, eight kegs of beer, and I'm like, okay, well, guys, I got a lot of beer here. I need to do something with this. You know, I still need to come up there and uh, and you know, dole out the beer to all your uh, uh, participants. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, Mike, you can come in. Uh, we'll set you up as a, you know, quote unquote, startup brewery. And so as we did this, we, we got prepared. We made signs. We, you know, that's where we came up with the logo real quick. And, um, and we, you know, I got a picture of that or that logo actually still hanging up in my garage. Um, we have a, a three, four, uh, keg reader and it hangs right over it. Right. Kind of goes, uh, yeah. You know, every night you want to come home, I still see that. So it's. Uh, living large after all these years, but the um, <clears throat> you know when we went into this festival, we had no idea what to expect. They put us in there with uh, two prominent Chicago breweries uh, that normally kill it, and we went in there with a German style Kolsch called the Marvelous Madness. We had our uh, logo up there. We also brought in survey cards so that we could actually kind of you know test the waters and see what people thought of our beer, and uh, as people started seeing us and they started seeing the line, these other two prominent breweries only had five to ten people on them, and we had over 200 people on our line at one point. And uh, I, I think it's because people thought we were possibly part of uh, Three Floyds, which is oh. a pretty prominent brewery over in uh, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And uh, they always used to come into this festival and be hidden, not really put up a, a nameplate anywhere. And, you know, it was kind of like a, a secret beer that you could go and find. And I think a lot of people thought that was us. And then when they got up there and found out that it wasn't, they still drank the beer, uh, filled out the surveys. And uh, when we got back and we tallied up the surveys, um, we had a you know 99-plus uh, approval rating. Oh, you must have been stoked with that. 
Uh, I was, and I was like, wow, maybe we got something here. Maybe we should go open a yeah. brewery. And uh, at that time, I owned another company and uh, couldn't make the jump. So we, you know, continued to make good beer. Uh, I started working on a business plan so that I knew eventually I would be selling this company. And so this was 2011, 2012, and uh, we ended up selling the company in 2015. And uh, at that point, I went full speed into uh, getting the business plan created, finding the location, and really taking it from there. I was going to ask you if you had business experience, and obviously you did. Can I ask what the other business was that you sold? Sure. It was a uh, software company. Okay. And we, yeah. we uh, you know, it was an IT firm, and we used to build custom software projects, and uh, we kind of came across a little niche market back in 2010 with uh, some regula- uh, regulations that came out, and we were in the right spot at the right time built a system that uh, aggregates all this information. And uh, let's just say that we had somewhere between 25 to 30% of the country's 401k data on our platform. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, made it very lucrative to yeah. be able to sell that. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, so my next question after that was, how did you get funding? Were you self-funded? Did you have VC? Did you have angel investors? Uh, did you go the commercial route? Tell me about that. Well, so... We had, you know, I made out okay when I uh, when I sold the company uh, enough not to uh, not to retire, but enough to, you know, kind of figure out what my next uh, venture was going to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have some friends that are uh, close here, and they also wanted. They're like, okay, they they saw what I did with the last company, saw what I could do with it. They knew that I knew how to run a company, and so I had a couple friends that wanted to hitch their wagon on this. And then on top of that. Um, I put together a business plan where we, uh, most of it was funded by myself. Uh, some of the money was funded by the investors, and then also we took out some bank loans to, uh, which going to a bank and actually trying to take out loans when you you have an idea but you don't have a business yet. Yes. Uh, it, it took some time to get that going. I've got similar experiences. Um, You know, I started my first restaurant 25 years ago. I had absolutely no restaurant experience and try to get funding from a bank to to start, you know, one of the riskiest businesses on the planet with no experience. It was a challenge, but we got it done. Yeah, I mean, the fact that I had a business plan, uh, I had testimonials, I had uh, some other brewers um, actually look at my business plan and actually validate it uh, with the bank. And that, that's how we kind of made it through that process. Yeah. But it was something that it, it took, you know, if people want to start a brewery and they don't want to have uh, VC money, and, and personally I, I didn't, uh, going the bank route is one way you can go, but be prepared to take, you know, 12 to 18 months to get, a, you know, all the I's out and T's right. crossed. Yes, yes. The committees are infamous <clears throat> for slowing things down. And yeah. Let me ask. Well, so, oh, I'm sorry. I, go I, ahead. I, I got I'm sorry. I, I got to tell you, they do yeah. that for a reason. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of glad that they did. They, they put me through the paces to really make sure that I knew what I was doing. And there were some aspects of the business that, you know, when they asked questions, I didn't have answers for. And I had to, you know, do my research and figure this stuff out, which is actually made for a stronger business um, now that we're open. That's a great point. Do you recall what some of that uh, extra due diligence was all about on the bank's part? Well, you know, they, they knew that we were going to make beer, and I had a whole production schedule about how we were, you know, how much we were going to sell each month. And so they had us actually break it down 
to how much are you going to sell in the tap room, how much are you going to sell in draft, and how much are you going to sell in package, uh, like cans. Mm -hmm. And uh, going through and actually figuring that out and coming up with realistic numbers and uh, showing the models for that uh, really, you know, solidified what we needed to do to actually operate our business. Is it really challenging to cost out? Okay, I'm sort of leading into an inventory question. There's lots of bar owners and operators and managers that listen to this, and we're all familiar with the inventory procedures, whether you use an automated system or you kind of lift the kegs and kind of shake them and figure out, you know, I got 25% of this one and that one's three quarters full, and it's an, you know, a, a fairly accurate guess. And then you can get a rough idea of, you know, your, your beverage costs and all that. But when you're brewing your own beer, in hundreds of gallons at a time, are there any particular challenges to figuring out what the value it is of that when you're taking inventory and what your actual cost of goods is on a keg of beer or if you break it down right down to the can? I mean, can you specifically answer that? You know, it's funny that you ask that because recently we've been uh, going through and figuring out because we, we sell our, our, our beer in, in four different uh, formats. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first format is, you know, half barrel kegs. The second is uh, sixels. The third is cans. And then the fourth is what we call the tap room. Um, and we, you know, unlike a lot of uh, brew pubs, we actually don't use serving tanks. All of our beer goes into kegs and goes into cold storage at that point. And so for us, um, the, the cost of goods is something that we, we can go through and actually look in the invoice uh, for where we bought all the ingredients, calculate the shipping. There's some other costs like, you know, the water and, and um, electricity and, and gas and things like that, that you kind of kind of have to think, you know, take a percentage because there's part of that that's used for the brewing process and part of it that's actually used uh, just to maintain the building. And so we've actually been going through and figuring this out and, you know, Taproom obviously is your, your number one moneymaker uh, when you make a batch of beer because mm -hmm. um, yeah. you get to sell it in full retail. Um, but then we were actually looking at it, and it, it's funny because the, uh, the half barrels, we do okay, but it's the sixels where we actually make most of our money. Okay. And, uh, yeah. yeah, which we, we, you know, we made a little bit of a misnomer there where we, we bought more half barrels than we did sixels, and we're, we're constantly having to buy more and more sixels as, as we continue to expand. What is the size differential there? I'm not familiar with the term. <clears throat> so six so a half barrel uh, holds fifteen and a half gallons. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a barrel of beer is, is thirty one gallons of beer, okay. and so half barrel kegs are you know the big ones that weigh about one hundred and sixty pounds to uh, total round. Yeah, uh, a six hole is um, one sixth of a barrel. So it's, oh, it's gotcha. So it's uh, one third. It's roughly five point two gallons of a uh, Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. And uh, for those, you know, like I said, and we've gone through and actually looked at, you know, how much money we and, uh, make off each, each of the styles. And the cans, we make a little bit of money, but it, the cans really are the marketing. Uh, for within 15 miles of the brewery, we can sell drafts all day. It's when you get more than 15 miles from the brewery, and if you don't have that marketing presence where people can actually go into a store and buy a can of your beer, you're not going to do very well selling draft. Yeah, it's a, it's obviously brand recognition, it's packaging, all those things, and I definitely want to go there because I really love your packaging. 
But yeah, this conversation keeps triggering all sorts of questions. Um, let's go back to the funding thing. Uh, you're in a capital intensive business, right? I mean, the equipment costs a lot. We're talking copper kettles and mash tons and like giant scale to, to scale this operation up in addition to the facility to house it, right? So you needed quite a bit of cash, didn't you? Yeah, this, uh, this project, uh, uh, it, it was supposed to start off. And when I talked to my wife about what, what we were going to do, you know, it was uh, what we were going to do was about one-tenth the size of what we actually ended up building. Wow. No and kidding. Uh, the reason for that is uh, we actually, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, small breweries that start up and they, you know, they go through the pain of, you know, they, it, it, it takes six to seven hours to brew a batch of beer. Whether you're making a gallon, five gallons, 10, a barrel, 15 or 30 barrels. Mm-hmm. Okay. It still takes the same amount of time to make a batch of beer. And what I did was I actually went through and ran the numbers and a 15 barrel brew house is what we have. That was the uh, kind of the minimum size that we could go and actually make a profit um, in the first couple of years. And so you know, we have a 15-barrel brew house. We have four 30-barrel fermenters, one 15-barrel fermenter. So with the 30-barrel fermenters, what we do is we can either single-batch or double-batch into those. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we, we, you know, the Marvelous, every time we make that, we make a double-batch because it is our number one seller. Right. In, in That's the first a signature year, beer. Yep. Yeah. In, in the first year, we sold over 4,000 gallons in the tap room. And uh, so it's uh, definitely one of our mainstays. But the, the funding of this, yeah, uh, like I said, the building we have a seventeen thousand square foot facility. Um, it's we got a occupancy, and, and our place everything right now is kind of oversized for the amount of beer that we make. But we're built for expansion. So everywhere that you look in the brewery, you know whether you're looking at where the bright tank is located, or you look at where all the uh, fermenters are, everything is stepped so that we can add more fermenters more bright tanks, um, and continue to expand. But our initial footprint is big enough where we can actually brew a ton of beer and not have to kill ourselves, um, you know, brewing every single day. And uh, it, it definitely uh, uh, makes it a lot easier to actually focus on the core business. And, and that's one of the things that we always struggle with. If you're brewing beer, you don't have time to answer emails. Um, so... We try to brew. We start at usually four in the morning and try to be done by noon so that we can actually be out, um, sound to uh, all of our accounts, going in, talking to them, tell them about what the new things are coming up, and uh, also to, uh, you know, like I said, get the paperwork done. Owning a brewery, there is a ton of paperwork uh, just to stay compliant with the federal and state regulations. And do those rules change frequently? Do you have to stay on top of new regs that always come down the road? Uh, you got to stay on top of new regs. Um, you know, we're, we're members of the uh, the Brewers Association, so yeah. we we go to the uh, um, uh, to all the conferences. Um, this weekend, we're actually in a uh, in competition in in downtown Chicago. Um, we work very closely with the uh, the Illinois Brewers Guild, so that. You know, some of the laws have recently changed where they now allow guest taps uh, in in our uh, in tap rooms. And uh, so we actually 
you know, one of the things that we don't make is a cider. It's considered a wine, mm. and mm-hmm. we wanted a gluten-free option that we could provide to some of our customers and also have something, uh, you know, non-beer for people when they come in. And instead of allowing them to bring bottles of wine in, we now have a, a hard cider that uh, is kind of rosé-flavored, uh, made from friends of ours. Let's go back to uh, opening the brewery. Um, I understand, well, market research is important in any enterprise when you're starting a new business, but you seem like you went above and beyond with the market research. We, we did. Um, we were, you know, downtown Chicago has a ton of breweries. Uh, there, there's over 100 of them down there. And up in Milwaukee, there's a ton of breweries. But in that 90-mile stretch in between, um, you know, when I started this, the uh, there weren't that many breweries in between Milwaukee and Chicago. And we're located um, uh, right off of Half Day Road. And uh, so Half Day Road is the uh, kind of the halfway point between um, Chicago and Milwaukee. The reason why it's called Half Day yeah. is it used to take when you were traveling by uh, um, you know, horse and buggy. Yes. It, it was a half a day. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. How many miles are you from Chicago and Milwaukee? You're equidistant? Um, We're roughly uh, about 35 miles from Chicago, and I would say about 50 miles from downtown Milwaukee. Okay. And you're kind of, I'm hearing that you're sort of in this epicenter of craft brewing and that there's competition. Would you say that's true? Yeah, there is competition, but we, you know, a lot of us, we we all work together. Yeah, that's great. It's a collaboration. It is a collaboration. If someone's low on hops, you know, we send out an email, hey, who's got this? Um, you That's know, if awesome. someone's running low on can supplies, hey, who's got lids? Um, That's great. Yeah, so we, we, we do all work together. We, Healthy we competition, a little bit of rivalry, but you guys support each other. I think that's tremendous. Absolutely. Now, you're familiar. I mean, you and I uh, talked a little bit about Boston earlier, and I'm just uh, north of Portland, Maine, and Portland is sort of a craft brewing epicenter of its own, and it seems like new breweries are opening up all the time. So it's definitely still a hot marketplace for beer. I mean, the world loves beer. You've got lots of different styles, although they are primarily German-style beers. You sound like you're doing really, really great with that. Um I started this conversation or, or just this question talking about market research, but I think I read somewhere that you had visited about 300 other brewing operations before you started yours. I, I did, actually. Um, so what I've done is, um, you know, the last few years of running the, uh, the software company I had, um, part of my job was to go out and visit with vendors and clients. And instead of going out and, you know, in financial services, you're always going out for that big steak dinner. And uh, I decided to kind of take a different tack because I knew my my life would be changing down the road. And I would always take our customers to uh, brew pubs, breweries, and just the fact that I kind of came in and I knew what I was talking about. Uh, A lot of places I would go and all of a sudden get my clients kind of a behind the scenes tour, you know, kind of, you know, going impromptu, walking in, talking to them. And uh, it was one of the ways that, you know, our clients are like, oh, my God, you know, we went out with Mike. We had so much fun. Uh, we were um, behind the scenes. We were talking to the brewer. We were actually, you know, eating raw grain, uh, looking at the different uh, varietals of hops and learning so much about brewing. And I kind of use my other company to, you know, kind of facilitate what I was going to do in my, my future life. That's awesome. And, 
Okay. So you had the exit strategy, and that was part of the exit strategy. Entertaining clients, learning as much as you could about other operations, what you liked, what you didn't like. It must have triggered lots of ideas that inspired your ultimate operation too, right? It, it did. I actually, yeah. uh, every place I went, I used to take notes. And so at the end of the night, I would sit there and um, basically just open up my phone, take a, you know, listening, the brewery, the data was there, and take notes from all the things I liked and some of the things, you know, that I thought they could do better. And kind of used all that information when I was actually building my own business line. This is great. Let's dive into the nuts and bolts of um, starting the operation. What would you say the biggest challenges were once you had your funding in place and then you were moving forward? Like what stopped you dead in your tracks? Do you have any hard luck stories along the way? Like what did you find most challenging? You know, you, you wake up every day, you, you pinch yourself real hard and hope it gets no worse than that. And uh, so when, when starting a new business, plan on being there about 18 hours a day. You know, I, I, I have a wife, two kids, dog, um, and really not seeing them for months on end while we were getting this thing up and running. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's one of the biggest challenges is trying to balance, you know, have a well-balanced life. But, you know, we were going through and, uh, you know, we had a, uh, we had zoning enforcement that was trying to force us to do a lot of things that we didn't need to do. And so you kind of give on some things, you take on the others, uh, like they wanted us to put in grease traps. And I'm like, well, we, we have no food. And uh, it was going to be $12,000 of putting uh, grease traps. So finally, I won on that one, but I had to go actually down to uh, Springfield, Illinois, and talk to those guys to have them relay back here to uh, Long Grove. You know, that's probably about a, uh, I don't know, three-hour drive down there. Yeah. Just to get them to say, okay, no, you don't need grease traps. Um, but then the uh, village forced me to put in a, uh, a grain handling room, and it's actually a explosion-proof room. Um, cost us seventy-five thousand dollars to put that room in there, and you know, I tried to explain to them we don't actually mill the grain; we just crack it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so at this point, we have done. I, I can't even imagine how many tons of grain through that over the past year and a half. But at this point, we've we've collected a leaf in the uh, in the seventy five thousand dollar room. But they considered that <laughs> some sort of a volatile material. Well, they think it is. But the, like I said, we we just cracked the grain. You just want to get to the the mall inside there. Uh-huh. And uh, even with, I mean, there's very little dust. And granted, we try to keep our uh, our operations very tidy. So every time we get done uh, brewing a batch of beer, we go through and do a, a complete uh, cleaning of the uh, brew house. So there's no dust anywhere. I can maybe see, I've been in some operations where it's pretty dusty. And I, I could see them needing that room. Okay. Uh, but it, from us, for us, operationally, um, I want to be able to pass the, uh, the white bread test. So you, and that's where you can actually go in the brew house take a slice of white bread, wipe it on any surface, and be able to eat it. How many years have you been operating now? Uh, a year and a half since we, is when we opened. Well, so you've come a long uh, way. We, we have come a long way. We've, uh, we've come up with uh, 14 different uh, beers. Uh, we've started a barrel aging program. We are now distributing our beer as far, far south as uh, East St. Louis and as far north as uh, southern Wisconsin. And, 
on top of that, we've uh, turned our, uh, our brewery into, uh, we have a, a lot of events that we do there. We had an Oktoberfest this year. We've done 13 weddings so far. I think we've got one more in the books for this year. Um, I mean, we've gotten pretty good at throwing big parties. And you've got a beer garden there, I understand. So that's is that sort of like a Munich situation where it's outdoors and big wooden tables and all that kind of thing? So what we did was the, the indoors, um, in, in the tap room, uh, the walls are lined with cedar. The uh, We have the, uh, the big communal tables. Uh, they actually came from Munich. And uh, so those are, you know, they're made out of solid ash. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, each one of them, it takes two people to lift them. Yeah, you they, get it. Yeah, and then out in the beer garden, there was a gazebo there. Uh, there was a deck out there, and what we did was we tore off the old deck. Uh, the underlying part was uh, was still pretty solid, so we, we reinforced all that and put on a brand-new cedar deck. And, I mean, this is a beer garden that holds 100 people. Um, it, it's not, not for the faint of heart. And, uh, I mean, we've had some... Uh, uh, what we'll do is out in the gazebo, we'll put bands every now and then, you know, do like an acoustic act, and uh, or we have people get married in the gazebo. Um, we'll, we'll tent the backyards for some of the bigger weddings, and uh, we, like I said, we have a lot of fun um, selling beer to people. Do you get any, uh, you know, traditional German entertainment coming in? Do you do the oompa bands, and does everyone wear later hosen? I mean, is this turning into a real annual tradition at your Oktoberfest or in general? Uh, at our Oktoberfest, I don't know if you saw any of the photos or not, but uh, I and uh, my manager and uh, uh, probably about, I think we had about 400 people there, and I would say about 25% of them were uh, dressed in either uh, later hosen or uh, Dermo. That's awesome. Oh, you know, I mean, that's just so festive, so fun, so part of the tradition of, you know, brewing and where the the whole concept really came from. Let's, okay, so a year and a half later now, what are you finding the biggest challenges to running your business are now? Uh, The biggest challenge is actually getting the word out there, who we are, what we are, you know. There's people that actually live in our town. Um, In in Long Grove, I mean, it's a very nice community. Um, you know, several acres zoning for uh, most of the houses. Uh, the houses are large and spacious, and there's uh, 8,000 people live there. And I will say our majority of our customer base is people from other towns. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love Long Grove. I love the people that do come from, from the town. But it, it's, it always feels like uh, the people that actually live in town want to go somewhere else. Uh, they they don't want to be in their own town, hmm, and, and and I I can understand that. I mean, I live in one town, and I always like to go over to the next town over to uh, to enjoy things. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think the biggest challenge we have right now is just getting the people uh, to know you know that we're actually there, that we're open for business. Uh, we've had a uh, major construction project going on this year, and. Uh, our building and another building uh, right right next door to us are kind of like the catalyst of uh, of change in, in the downtown, and uh, we we put the uh, um, sorry sorry about that yeah no worries um, <clears throat> so we put the uh, um, we put uh, city water into the brewery when we moved in the the entire downtown did not have water um it, you know they were still using well water um they were on sewer fortunately uh, but now we've actually just we're, we're wrapping up in fact today they're, they're pouring the uh, the asphalt mm-hmm. 
Um, but we've actually been under construction now for about six, seven months. Oh. Where the roads have all been torn mm. up. They've been one, one way. And uh, getting into our, our location mm-hmm. has been a bit of a challenge. Yeah, that's a setback, huh? It's a setback. But, I mean, we are, you know, our, our signs that we put up around town is, you know, we're, we're you know, paving the way to a better future. And, you know, new, new sewer, new, uh, new water, uh, new gas lines, new electrical, new utilities all throughout the whole place. Uh, downtown Long Grove, um, you know, in the next couple months is really being transformed into a city that's going to be there for, for many, many years um, with all these uh, cute little uh, antique buildings with a proper infrastructure to support them. So you got a temporary, you know, blip in the in the radar here, and then ultimately it's going to be much stronger once all this infrastructure is finished. Absolutely. I mean, right now people come to the town. We we're a big festival town. I don't know if uh, Jody shared that with you, but no, we. Uh, so Long Grove is known for its festivals, and um, they've had festivals for over thirty years, and. They start off the uh, the season usually with Chocolate Fest, which is in May. Awesome. Right behind that is uh, Strawberry Fest. And then in the fall, they do Apple Fest. And these festivals bring in, you know, 30,000, 35,000 people uh, for each festival. So it's a great way to kind of showcase the brewery, showcase what the town has, uh, so that when we're, you know, in between the months of having festivals, we can have people come back and enjoy and, and really experience a unique little town. That is fantastic. I mean, what a great draw. I mean, is that an active chamber of commerce that brings these festivals in? As a matter of fact, it is. It's the uh, yeah. historic downtown, uh, um, historic, what is it? historic downtown Long Road Business Association. And I should know that very well because I'm actually the president of it. <laughs> yeah, I was once the president of my chamber of commerce in Maine as well. So I know what that's all about. Yeah. I really love the packaging of your product. I mean, did you have the brainstorm for it? It's edgy, you know, it's it's intriguing. Um, but then you hired a graphic, a strong graphic designer to come up with this stuff. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the so the graphic designer, um, he's he's been a friend of mine. He was actually an employee of mine uh, years ago with the with the software company. And uh, he's always been doing uh, great stuff for us. We we've used him um and I, like I said, with the software company as, as a design engineer for years and years. And when I came time to doing this, um, he, he does a lot with marketing. Um, and he started his own company a few years back. And uh, so I'm like, okay, well, here's what we want to do. And he he worked with us. We would throw ideas at him. And then his artist would actually go through and kind of take that. Um, they worked with us to design our logo. So if you, if you notice our logo, it's a buffalo head with a creek below it. That's mm-hmm. you know, Buffalo Creek. Yes. Um, the uh, the marvelous, you know, we it's a German style Kolsch, so we we got the Bavarian uh, beer girl there. Uh, She's got a little bit of butter. attitude, that girl. She does. <laughs> I like that. She's carrying, you know, you, on average they carry you know eight liters of beer at a time, so she doesn't want to take any crap from anyone. Perfect. That's cool. Keep going. Uh, the, the farmer's illegit daughter. Uh, that was actually based on a couple of friends of mine. Um, it's a farmhouse saison, and uh, you know we wanted kind of a, a punk look to it. So we have a, a girl yeah. um, that's sitting there leaning up against a, a fence in front of a barn, uh, but one side of her head, you know, she's got long hair, but one side of her head has been shaved. And uh, I actually um, have a friend that 
this spirit was actually modeled after. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, uh, Mamet is named after uh, David Mamet. He's the, uh, the playwright who wrote American Buffalo okay. and uh, lives in Chicago. Mm. Uh, Buffalo, that's our double IPA. And if you look at it, there's actually two, um, two buffaloes on there. And uh, the word Buffalo is what Buffalo, New York used to be named after. It sounds it's uh, French for beautiful creek. So, I mean, if you go through and you look at each one of our cans, and uh, one of our favorites is called 42K. I don't know if you've seen that one or not. Yeah, I have. So 42K is actually um, one of the challenges we had was that those uh, charged us $42,000 to hook up to the water supply. Well, there's the story behind that. Yeah. So we, you know, and I basically told them, like, you know, this is ridiculous. Um, yeah. It's a lot of money. Yeah. And the funny thing is they've actually revamped it now. And the highest anyone, now that we've got the water supply for everyone, the highest anyone will ever pay is 22000 Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, so. You guys set the precedent for that? We, we set the precedent for that. And, and um, what we did was on that can is we created a, a toad-looking creature sitting in a chair in front of our brewery, one hand on the waterworks and the other hand with a briefcase with cash falling out of it. Nice. So, that's awesome. Yeah. These are great, yeah. really great ideas and, and really, really strong marketing here. And obviously the packaging uh, obviously creates the buzz in the marketplace, gets people to try the product, but it's the beer that brings them back again. So it sounds like you're hitting all those nails on the head. You know, and, that, and that's the thing. When owning a brewery, there, there's a lot to it. I mean, making good beer is just a very small part of it. Having a place where people can come in and get the full experience having the packaging, having all the marketing. I mean, even putting the, the beer in stores, that's great. But if you don't put the point of sale, um, all, all that kind of uh, marketing right there next to the beer, people make the last minute decision. And a lot of people we find actually make a, uh, uh, they'll actually buy a beer based on the packaging. And then, you know, if the beer is good, they'll continue to drink it. And uh, so that's uh you know, you got to attract people, especially when you're a new brewery out there. So having uh, something that's a little edgy, something that is, uh, you know, doesn't look like everyone else's, uh, that, that's what we thrive for and or strive for. And, um, you know, if you actually look at all of our cans and you put them all next to each other, it kind of tells a story as well. But, I saw that. I did notice that. And, yeah, and I think that's intriguing. Yeah, many breweries, they'll sit there and every can has a completely different design. And you have no idea that all those cans actually belong to the same brewery. Where ours, they're all, you know, we, we actually go through and as part of our design, we use a uh, Mylar uh, label. And so that kind of shows through and it makes it look like the, uh, it's a transparent label where the, uh, the actual silver part of the can is actually coming through. You've triggered all sorts of questions, Mike. Let's let's talk about the all-important distributor relationship. How did you find your distributor? Was it your very first distributor? Is the relationship strong? Do they really aggressively market your products compared to all the other product lines they carry? I mean, I can go down a million roads there. So when we when we started with distribution, um, we wanted to kind of try something and, and you know, kind of see how it went before we went full full speed ahead with the distributors. And what a lot of people don't understand is that you can only sell your beer to one distributor in each geographic location. 
so like here in, uh, we live in Lake County, uh, our, our brewery's in Lake County, and there, there's several different distributors here, but you can only pick one of them. You, you can't have more than one distributor. And uh, so when we, we decided to go down this route of actually using a distributor, we went with one down in Southern Illinois so that we could kind of test the water down there, see how things worked, figure out the logistics, um, and if anything got messed up, we could talk it off. Okay, that's Southern Illinois, not a problem. Um, but things, you know, it went very well. Uh, we were down there for the uh, the kickoff meeting. Uh, one of the things that, you know, when you work with a distributor is you actually need to be hands-on. You, you need to go down. You need to visit them. Uh, you need to go out with the reps, um, you know, every couple of uh, weeks. And when you go out with the reps and you're actually sitting in front of a, uh, um, a restaurant owner and you're telling them, okay, I made this beer and you're describing the beer yourself, it helps you get into accounts a lot faster. And it also helps you uh, get permanent handles on um, when you're trying to get that, you know, it, it's great to get your beer into a place and you can always do it once, but to have a constant rotation of your beers going into and having a permanent tap handle that is much more difficult and it takes a lot of relationship building. And so we have hired um, a couple different, um, we, we have employees and we also have a firm that works with us as our kind of our ambassador. They, they uh, uh, dress like they're one of our employees and they go in and they actually uh, will sell our beer. They will do the beer tasting. So uh, work with us on the, uh, all the different festivals that we do in that area. Uh, so there, there's a lot to actually getting your beer out there in the market. Are there incentive rules? Uh, are your state liquor laws against certain dollar incentives or value incentives to get your, you know, get yourself into new um, locations with tap handles and that sort of thing? I know certain states are really strict on that. Others, not so much so. So Illinois is one of those states that's very strict on that. You know, we are located directly between Budweiser and Miller. I mean, if you, if you think about it, St. Louis on one end of the state yeah. and Milwaukee on the other end. Right. And uh, right. those those two companies, they really stress the fact that we have to use the three tier system. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, Illinois Liquor Commissioner, um, they they don't mess around. They, they've created a task force. You know, you, you can't um, leave like uh, coasters or tin tackers or any of that stuff. You actually have to sell that uh, to the uh, to the locations. No kidding. Out. Neon beer signs, yeah. all that stuff, huh? Everything. And they need to see invoices and it can't be, you can't just invoice them for 10 bucks. You got to actually invoice them for, you know, fair market value. Okay. Yep. Just one more uh, <laughs> regulation that you got to comply with. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's in a way it's a good and bad thing. I mean, as, as a small brewery, you want to be able to kind of bend the rules a little bit. But not being able to do so uh, also makes it you're, you're playing by the same rules that the big boys play with as well. So you got great packaging, and you're a pretty dynamic guy, and I'm sure you're pretty compelling and convincing when you meet these bar and restaurant owners. But are, are there any other competitive advantages that you present to get your foot in the door to a new place? I mean, what would you say other than you know the quality of the product really sets you guys apart and the packaging? Do you have anything else that you hang your hat on? We are all about customer service. Okay. Um, I mean, you got to have the complete package. And if you're not uh, following through with, you know, 
when, when a customer wants a case of beer and it doesn't show up, you got to jump on the phone, call the distributor, work with them, saying, hey, they, they, they have our beer on the menu. It's supposed to show up today. It didn't show up. I need it there first thing tomorrow morning. Um, likewise, if we're out in the uh, um, places where we're still doing self-distribution, mm-hmm. one of our biggest selling points is you know, staying on top of uh, all of our accounts. And if they need a beer, um, we we created a, uh, a strawberry blonde beer uh, that uh, sold fantastically over the summer. And we, we created it for Strawberry Fest. Well, we put it into this place that's probably 40 miles from the brewery. The first keg, they, they crushed it in 24 hours. No kidding. And here it is, Strawberry Fest in our town. You can barely get in and out because there's 30,000 people there. And they're like, guys, we, we ran out of beer. So we had a guy run another keg out. They crushed that one in 24 hours. And I'm like, okay, guys, you need to order three kegs now because you're going through this too fast. And uh, so, but being on top of it, being out there, um, same-day service, at the very least, you need to communicate with your uh, with your accounts. So if you don't call them, send them an email. Say, hey, this is what's going on, and just let them know that you're still working through any issues. Yeah, the real basics of old-school business. Follow through, follow through, and do what you say you'll do. Exactly. And if you don't do that, you're going to be dead in the water because they'll talk bad about you. And next thing you know, word spreads, especially these days with social media. No question about it. How many employees do you have, Mike? Currently, we have 13 employees. And have you found, uh, you know, everyone in this country, doesn't matter what business you're in, is talking about the labor shortage, lowest unemployment in history, blah, 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 difficult to find and keep a great staff. I mean, have you had challenges there? And what are you doing to overcome it? So we're, we're always looking for good people. Uh, even when we have everything um, fully supplied, mm-hmm. we're, we're constantly looking for more people. And, and that's one of, my, uh, one of the things that even when I own the software company, we are always, even though if we were fully staffed, we are always looking for more people. And because you want to you want to be out there, you want to be relevant, you want to be talking to people. And that way, when all of a sudden you have a, a need, you have kind of a, a pool to pick from right away. And uh, so, um, but I will say most of the people that have worked, uh, that work at the brewery, they've been there since the day we opened. Uh, we, we have very low uh, um, uh, retention problems. I mean, we, we, we have a fun environment. Uh, people get to uh, drink beer while they're there. They just can't drink too much. Yeah. And then, um, well, there's an incentive. Yeah, that's an incentive, and a lot of times our employees, you know, after their shift is over, you know, they'll, they'll sit back and have a couple of beers and, and relax. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's um, but you got to treat your people right, and so we, we try to do a lot of things. We Every month we have a, uh, um, it's, it's not a mandatory meeting, but we provide breakfast. We all get together on a Saturday, 7 in the morning, and I... You know, go through with, you know, there, there's three of us. So we got the tapper manager, we got the distribution manager, and we got myself. And we talk about what's going on. I talk about the new styles of beer that are coming out, what's, you know, currently in the pipeline, um, all the events that are coming up over the next month, um, what we're doing with distribution. Uh, if, if you don't keep your employees informed, then they can't talk about it in the tap room to all the customers that come in. And if they can't talk about it and the customers don't know about it, the word doesn't spread. Yeah, we had tremendous um, 
fortune with keeping what I, once we've created what I call the dream team staff, you know, they were incentivized and we had recognition and rewards programs, but we really created what I call the culture of hospitality, family, and fun. And it sounds like you're doing the exact same thing. But I, I was able to turn my staff into brand ambassadors for our business, and then they in turn made friends with the customers every single day, and then the customers became the best marketers. And it sounds like you're doing a lot of the similar things. Yeah, and I think that's the probably the only way you can really do this unless you have a ton of money. Um, I mean, you, you can market the heck out of it, or you you can you know grow it organically. Yeah, and that's all internal marketing as well because you can use your staff and they are – if they're really, really happy with what they're doing, then they bring other people that they know that think you're – that fit your culture and then you know they bring other people and you know that's one way that you build your own dream team. But on top of that, you know if you can get them posting on social media all the events you're having and they're taking photos. I mean you got your little marketing army of your own staff and then your customers are doing the same thing and that's the organic stuff that's really powerful and cost effective. Absolutely. I totally agree. Do you have any plans to add a restaurant operation? I had to ask that question. We, we do not. In fact, um, it is actually against the law. Oh, really? Tell me about that. Yeah. So you can be, so, you know, we're, we're a production brewery with distribution mm -hmm. and with a brew pub, uh, that really limits what you can do, uh, in regards to distribution. So brew pub, yes, you can sell food, you can sell liquor, wine, um, but you can't distribute as much beer as you can, um, without, uh, switching over to a brewery license. Okay. Oh, interesting. So that, yeah. Yeah. So there's two different licenses here in Illinois. And that's a whole nother animal that adds a whole tremendous amount of challenge to what you're already doing. It does. You know, and we, we'd rather focus on what we do best. Mm -hmm. um, having a restaurant, it, it's one of those things that, you know, you need a, a different staff, you need, you need a kitchen, you need a different set of inventory, uh, different kinds of marketing. And I know many tap rooms that do a great job um, as being a brew pub, but for us, that, that's really not in our forte. What advice, Mike, would you give others who want to start their own brewing operation? You know, either they're home brewers now or they've worked for other breweries. I mean, what, what would you give them as your best advice to follow in your footsteps? Uh, I think the best advice I can give anyone is to do your homework, uh, figure out as much as you can build a really solid business plan before jumping into it. Um, I, I've met so many brewers that are great at brewing beer, but they, you know, they just don't have what it takes to run a business. And I, I've seen a lot of them go out of business because of that. And uh, I mean, yes, it's a fun world, but it is a business at the end of the day. And if you're not profitable, you're not going to be in business for long. Yeah, you and I are on the same page about so many things, and the same can be said for chefs. You know, I work with a lot of chefs, and I work with a lot of different restaurants out there, and obviously someone who's worked for someone else forever has always wanted to put their name on the door, and, you know, just because you're an amazing culinarian doesn't mean that you're suddenly going to enjoy all the issues that come with having employees and all the regulations and the marketing and all those other things when your passion is really just being in the kitchen cooking. So that's where a lot of chefs run into some issues as well. So yeah, the solid business plan, knowing everything you're getting into before you get into it. And uh, if you don't know, surround yourself with great people that can fill in the missing pieces, right? 
Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I always like to hire people that are smarter than me. So <laughs> I did the same. Uh, <laughs> Is there anything that we haven't talked about that, that I missed that you'd like to uh, share with the audience, Mike? Um, I think we covered a lot. We and did. It's been a this, great, robust episode. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure we could we could talk for hours about the uh, the interest case, interest. I can't even say the word this morning. I need more coffee. Um, but, uh, you know, going through and all the details it takes as you're running a, a business, setting it up and, you know, maintaining it. I mean, the biggest thing is anyone can build something once. You know, that's where I say you can get a case of beer in anywhere once. But if you don't have sell through, um, it, it doesn't do you any good. Right. And so it's the follow through with all the different aspects of actually running a business and, um, and, you know, making it successful that people want to be a part of it. People want to um, come and experience it and people want to enjoy the, the products that you make. And you're still wearing all the hats, it sounds like. I mean, granted, you're a year and a half into it, but you are the brewmeister. You're also the, the you know, the chief cook, bottle washer. You're the, the human resources professional. You're out in the marketplace talking to your customers. You're dealing with the supermarkets and the retailers to, you know, get the sell-through part. I mean, you're pulled in a lot of directions. I'm, I'm pulled in a lot of directions, but at the same time, I'm having a blast on it. Huh, you love what you do. It's obvious I, that you're passionate about beer. You're passionate about your customers. You're passionate about the product and the employees that be, have become family for you. So I can only imagine how much fun that is. It's not work anymore when you love what you do. Right. I mean, I, I can go in, work an 18-hour day, and still drive home with a smile on my face. There's not many people that can say that. That is absolutely true. So I want to encourage our audience to visit your website. It's buffalocreekbrewing.com. And I've been speaking with Mike Marr today. What a great guest. Thanks for appearing, Mike. Um, how else can our audience find you? Do you have any social media handles you want to share? Yeah, we're, we're on, uh, you can find us on Facebook at uh, Buffalo Creek Brewing. You can find us on Instagram at Buffalo Creek Brewing. And then um, you can also find us on Twitter at Buffalo CRK Brewing. Buffalo CRK Brewing. Awesome. Well, yeah. thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast today, Mike. I learned so much, and I know that the audience got lots of great takeaways as well. We wish you the best in the future with Buffalo Creek Brewing. And yeah. next time I'm in the Chicago area, I hope to pay you a visit. Absolutely, and uh, you know, I just want to leave you one one thing. Please I used do. to ski up at uh, Sunday River in Maine. Yeah, and every time I drive up there from Boston, you guys have that sign that says Maine, the way life should be. That's right. I always wanted to add one more tag onto it. What is it on the week on the weekends? Excellent, <laughs> excellent. When was the last time you were at Sunday River? Last question. Uh, Sunday River, probably uh, early two thousands. Okay, so you were around when I owned my restaurants there. My Matterhorn Ski Bar, I started in 1995 and sold it in 2014. It was right on the access road. It was the rockinest place around, and it still is. And you know something? I remember that place very well, so that is an awesome place. This is so cool. It's all come full circle. <laughs> Mike, thank you thank very you. much. Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. And uh, we'll catch you again next time. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Thanks for listening. Listen, I want to give you a bonus today. I want to tell you about two super powerful free webinars that I'm giving that will transform your business. That's right. These are real game changers. First, 
in this challenging time of low unemployment and difficulty that everybody's having, finding and creeping great people, you already know that your staff make or break your business, and sales are the lifeblood of that business. So my first webinar is called How to Build Your Dream Team, Double Sales, and Get Rave Reviews. I'm going to show you three powerful secrets. Number one, how the common approach to restaurant hiring is the wrong approach. Don't make this mistake, folks, okay? Watch to find out the right way. Number two, how to build your dream team staff. Cut turnover and empower your team to think and act like owners. Again, your staff and how you train them and how you treat them, okay, are going to make all the difference in your business. And three, how to double sales through training, recognition, and rewards. Who doesn't want to double sales? The name of this webinar is How to Build Your Dream Team, Double Sales, and Get Rave Reviews. And to get it, all you got to do is go to our website homepage, that's restaurantrockstars.com, and at the very top in the header bar, click on that and you'll get access to the webinar. Number two, the second webinar we're going to do, okay, if you're just starting a brand new restaurant, or you've recently opened a place and you're feeling overwhelmed, you're in the weeds, you just know you're missing some important pieces, you got to check this out. In this webinar, it's called How to Start and Run a Wildly Successful Restaurant, I'm going to share three secrets that will make all the difference for great success. I'm going to teach you, one, how to know and review your critical restaurant numbers in just 10 minutes a week. Even if you hate the numbers, guys, I make it simple, okay, super simple. Two, how to build a dream team staff and double sales, again, through empowerment, recognition, and rewards. I'm going to give you that roadmap to the foundation of every successful business. I mentioned earlier, if you're just starting your first place or you've just opened, even if you've been open a while or you're a veteran operator, this is powerful information that you need to check out that's really going to help transform that business, okay? Fantastically powerful stuff. And then three, how to drive new and repeat business while building strong customer loyalty to your restaurant. It's all about satisfied, loyal customers, getting them to come back and tell their friends. Again, this is for every operator. So to register for this free webinar, head on over to restaurantrockstars.com forward slash wildly successful. Check these things out. Again, game-changing stuff. Transform your business. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next podcast. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. And while you're there, download a copy of the book, Rock Your Restaurant. It's a game changer. See you next time.